I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Dr. Christopher Perrin, and welcome to this episode of Café Scolé. In previous episodes, we've been looking at prayer and study as a form of prayer, and as a very important way of paying attention. We learned that when we considered an essay by Simone Weil, and I've also consulted with A.G. Sertelange and his book, The Intellectual Life, to to see study as a form of prayer. He, He, quoting the tradition, says that study is a prayer to the truth. I'm going to return to him in a bit, but in this episode, I want to turn our attention to contemplation. Contemplation as a critical and important way that we engage in a kind of studious prayer. Now, contemplation is a word that is well known in the tradition of classical education and classical Christianity. It's known outside of Christianity, of course, because human beings apparently are designed to contemplate truth as well as to think about truth. And this week I'd like to cite as our kind of visiting tutor, Josef Pieper. Josef Pieper, the German philosopher who lived through Nazi Germany and wrote a number of books, including Leisure, the Basis of Culture, and a couple of books on the virtues, one called Faith, Hope, and Love, and another, The Four Cardinal Virtues. But he's also written a small book called Happiness and Contemplation. And he's so good at summarizing thought that has gone before us that I like to turn to him to understand the classical tradition in a number of respects, especially when it comes to scolé, leisurely learning, and the study of the virtues and now contemplation. So I've just said that it seems that humans enjoy and can't help but contemplate truth, goodness, and beauty, as well as to think about truth, goodness, and beauty. Why the distinction? Well, it's because contemplating is different from the more discursive use of of our reason. You can read about this in Leisure, the Basis of Culture by Joseph Pieper. You can certainly read about it in Thomas Aquinas. You can read about it in Augustine and Gregory and other places. But the tradition often makes a distinction between the active life and the contemplative life. Frequently, that passage from Luke 10, where Christ visits Martha and Mary, is summoned up to describe the difference between an active life and a contemplative life, or to describe the harmony that we should embody between both the active and the contemplative life. Because in that passage, when 
Christ visits these two sisters, we find Martha busy either preparing or cleaning up for a meal, and Mary sitting at Christ's feet. You know the story. Martha confronts not Mary with her frustration, but Jesus Christ, and says to Jesus, Tell my sister to help me. Christ's response is to say, Martha, Martha, you are busy, or this could be translated anxious. You are anxious about many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the better part, and it will not be taken from her. So commentators on this passage from Gregory and Augustine to Aquinas have said that Martha and Mary represent two legitimate and important aspects of our humanity. To be active in love, but also to be contemplative in love. In other words, it's not that Martha was really doing something significantly wrong by serving Christ in her home, but she was just not recognizing what was the right time for that kind of love. Augustine commenting on this passage says that our active love for our neighbor or our love for neighbor, our neighbor, compels us to be active in serving our neighbor. And this is a good and blessed thing. So we all are to be Martha's. But he also says that there's a time when we are to, in prayer and contemplation, love God, listen to God, be with Christ, contemplate. So the contemplative life and the active life are to be together in a harmony. And in our culture, of course, the challenge is not that we perhaps don't understand these two distinctions. It's that our Martha has overcome our Mary. Where is the contemplative life in the midst of so much frenzied activity? Augustine says that love compels us to both love our neighbor with action and also to contemplate God in solitude and silence. Prayer. Contemplation. So, Joseph Pieper in this little book that I'm holding in my hand, Happiness and Contemplation, will tease out this tradition and describe why it is that for human beings to be fulfilled, we must learn contemplation. If we are to be happy human beings, we must learn how to contemplate. And what's more, we already desire to do this But often this desire is thwarted or overcome or squelched in some way. Pieper says that the essence of contemplation is a seeing of the beloved object. It's it's a kind of possession that occurs through a contemplative seeing that gives us a kind of knowledge that can come in no other way. In fact, to make the distinction, he says, contemplation is a knowledge about what is present, and thinking is knowledge about what is absent. So, 
that's worth thinking about, isn't it? That's worth both contemplating and thinking about. This is one reason why we use the word see to describe knowing. When we see something, it seems to be in us. It seems to be as present to us as possible. So when we say something like, now I see what you're saying, or when someone is describing, say, a a math equation or problem to you, and you begin to see how it is solved, you begin to see the meaning in a mathematical equation, you will say things like, I see it now. Because it is the sense that we use to describe things that are as immediately present to us as possible. You know, if we touch something, it still seems to be external to us. But when we see it through our eyes, it's as if it becomes part of us. So even the verb is important. We want to see. And the word intuition is also used as a synonym for contemplation. And it, it as a word itself, has seeing as a part of its root meaning. It's from the Latin verb intuor, which means to, I gaze. So to gaze at something, to ponder, ponder something with our eyes is a way of knowing something intuitively. So this is still preserved to some degree in our English language when we say that someone has an intuition of something or we speak of someone's, a woman's intuition. This this is a person, whether it's a man or a woman, who can perhaps come into a room and scan the faces and know what's happening in that conversation and know who is upset or concerned or sad or mournful or joyful and maybe even know why without having gone through a logical process. So we still understand intuition in this way, but it means to gaze, to look at something. And this is related to Another older phrase, intellectual knowing or the intellectual vision. The word intellectual preserves the same kind of idea in the classical tradition. Intellectual vision, intellectual knowledge means to know something in this kind of direct way of seeing or apprehending. Another phrase is the beatific vision. This just means it's a vision that blesses us and gives us beatitude or delight. In fact, we read about this in the classical tradition. Thomas talks a lot about this, St. Thomas Aquinas, that happiness, our joy and beatitude, comes as a result of this kind of intuitive knowing of something, such that it becomes present to us, in ways that are actually hard to describe. And the tradition says this as well. When you know something by intuition, it's really impossible to fully communicate with words. Now, haven't you experienced this? Haven't you seen something, known something by intuition that has created joy, happiness, and even a note of sorrow because it's always inadequate in this life. Every fulfillment this side of heaven instantly reveals its inadequacy. Pieper writes this, quoting, quoting Thomas. But haven't you had those experiences? How do you then 
communicate that to someone else? Have you, for example, ever observed something enormously beautiful in nature? Have you seen, say, a horse galloping? Or your dog stalking prey? Or seen uh, some beautiful bird lightly land on a tree branch in your yard or in the woods on a walk? And experienced a kind of uplifting of your soul and spirit as you gazed upon this that was combined with some longing. Of course you have. We've, we've all experienced this because we're humans, put in this world, I believe, by God. Well, how do you communicate that kind of experience in a narrative to a friend afterwards? It's difficult, and that's why we have poets who probably, well, I think certainly come closest to doing this. And this is why we have music as well. To experience a beautiful piece of music like, oh, say, I'm thinking of Bach's Mass, um, Vivaldi's Four Seasons. If you've ever been moved by something very beautiful, how, how do you then turn that into words? Well, we can try, and it's good to try. But is it really possible using words to communicate that intuitive knowing? <sighs> well, now just for a moment to pause and ask ourselves as educators, if, if you are an educator, how do, we, how do we incorporate these kinds of insights about intuitive knowing into our teaching? Well, certainly, it seems to me that we have to slow down and that we have to make space for it. Um, again, referring back to Martha and Mary... We often do just too many good things in the active mode. We have lectures and conversations and readings and discussions and worksheets and writing assignments. All of these things are necessary and good, just like active benevolent love for our neighbor is good. We are to love God and neighbor. But when do we slow down enough that we might know something by intuition, and contemplation. We know that this word contemplation has a lovely, rich etymology. You can hear it, can you not? The word temple is in contemplation, just as the word to gaze is in intuition. Well, templum in Latin meant temple, and con, that con is from cum, it means with the temple or to be in the temple, so, contemplation is suggesting to us by its etymology that we are to find a sacred space and place. When do we make a place and time? When do we create conditions such that our students might actually be able to gaze for a while? Now, I think this is the principle. We have to create conditions and space where this might possibly occur. We need to bring the true and the good and the beautiful in various forms and various artifacts before our students for them to gaze as if they were in an enchanted museum and then give them time to simply gaze, ponder, savor, see. 
Now, how does this work work itself into lesson plans? <laughs> well, not easily, of course. But this is precisely, I think, the difficulty is that because we're not sure how to do it, we sometimes don't. We do what is more understandable and formulaic. We 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 do what was done to us when it comes to teaching, and the active mode is more 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 plain, perhaps, and easier to achieve. Any of you who are in the Christian tradition or even other religious traditions know that prayer can be difficult. It can be difficult to simply set one's soul and mind aside to pray, to praise, to petition, to engage God. By analogy, it can be difficult in a classroom setting as well. Students are used to moving about. They're used, they've been trained to do writing assignments and various kinds of exercises and worksheets and so forth. They're trained to listen to our lectures and presentations and lessons. But when have we trained them to slow down and see? I think, first of all, just encountering that as an idea, if you will, as a principle for education, is the most important thing a teacher can do, is to engage this idea and become convinced that, yes, this is, this should be a part of how I teach. Even if it's only 10% of the kind of time we spend with students, there should be contemplative, restful learning as a part of our regular teaching with students. Of course, many of you will be asking the question, how do I do this? How do I do this? How do I do this? But that's not the most important question. The more, most important question or issue, well, the most important question is, what is contemplation and why is it important? Then the various applications of it will start to flow. And again, if you want to be a liberated, free educator who knows what to do and when, what you really don't need is a list of contemplative exercises that you can plug in at various times. Now, okay, that can, that's not necessarily harmful, and I hope that we can talk about that in future podcasts. But what's much, much more important is that you understand what contemplation is, why it is important. Because once you do, as a free person, you will be able to invent the kind of activities and exercises that are contemplative. But let's just cite one example, shall we? Just so that we're not only talking in the abstract. If you're teaching biology or science, say, well, you have some wonderful opportunities to provide contemplation to your students. An example I like to use because we have stick bugs in Pennsylvania is the stick bug. Stick bug is a, a bug that indeed looks almost identical to a stick, except that it has legs and can move. You can hardly tell where the head of this creature is. But it's a remarkable creature. And it appears all the more remarkable the longer we gaze at it. So 
if I were to be teaching a, a nature study or a science class or a biology class, I would certainly use creatures like the stick bug regularly. And I would provide opportunities for students to examine and gaze and ponder the stick bug for, for longer periods of time than we would typically be used to. I'm thinking 15 minutes. What if we gave our students opportunities to draw the creatures that we put before them so that by drawing, they also learn to see? This is a point that's been made by classical educators for centuries, Joseph Pieper included. One reason every student should learn to draw, according to Pieper, is simply that that student might learn to see. Because as you begin to draw the stick bug or a fish or anything else, you'll begin to pay a more focused attention to what's before your eyes. You know that things pass through our vision, through our eyes, all the time that we don't really perceive. Our brain is filtering a lot of things out. I could be looking out my window now as I am here in Pennsylvania, seeing uh, green trees and green grass and branches, but there's so many things that I'm not seeing. If I would just take the time to gaze and look and ponder, I would see what I'm not really seeing. So there's just one example for you from the natural world. Those of you who teach the natural world, teach natural science, well, there are untold opportunities to provide for contemplation. I would also say this. We ought not to tell students what they're going to see and rob them of the delight of discovery and surprise. For example, with the stick bug, I would simply put that stick bug in front of students without announcement, without any pre-warning, and let them see the stick bug in a jar, perhaps on my desk, and then call them after they'd found it on their own to circle around it and perhaps spend 10 minutes looking at it, commenting on it, and perhaps drawing it. If you teach mathematics, well, there's so many mysterious, wonderful components to mathematical thinking. But because of the way we've been trained, we tend to think of mathematics as a series of exercises and operations in the back of a thick textbook that we must repeatedly practice. Now, there's a place for practicing operations and logarithms but there's also a place for contemplating the mysteries and wonders and beauties of mathematical ideas. One that comes to mind is the Fibonacci sequence. This Italian uh, philosopher scientist was able to note a pattern in numbers that also corresponded to patterns in nature. The Fibonacci sequence, it starts with one and one, then add those two numbers together you get two, then add two and one together, and you get three. Then add three and two together, and you get five. Then add five and three together, and you get eight. Then add eight and five together, and you get 13. You see the pattern? Do you see it after you've contemplated it? Well, now you see a pattern that can go on for an infinity. But there's something else that's remarkable and wonderful about that pattern it also describes a perfect spiral. 
You can look this up on the internet if it's of interest to you. Look up the Fibonacci sequence and the spiral and also the golden rectangle because the ratio of, of, of the golden rectangle also corresponds to the numbers in the Fibonacci sequence. It's, it's remarkable. There's a, a Wikipedia article on this that will, will show it to you as well as describe it quite well. Well, we could go on, and I hope we will go on in the future, to describe how, in various practical ways, educators can bring contemplation to our teaching. But for now, I want to emphasize again how important it is that we understand what contemplation is and why it is important. Do we not see this contemplative mode in Scripture? Do we not see it in the Old Testament as well as the New? Do we not see it, in fact, throughout human experience? Let's talk about the Old Testament for a moment. How about David, King David in Psalm 27? David, perhaps a very, very busy executive and monarch, a king, says in Psalm 27 that there's one thing that he desires, that he might dwell in the temple of the Lord and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord all the days of his life. Now, David actually didn't have time to do that. He did have to continue to be a king. But he describes this yearning of his own soul to gaze upon beauty. This is, according to Pieper and the tradition, a common element of contemplation. It's, it's a loving, yearning, affirming, bent towards happiness, which is the same as God himself. That God himself is happiness, is blessedness. And Pieper talks about this. He says, you know, in the pagan mindset, the Greek pagans thought that only the gods were makarios, blessed. But somehow, in contemplation, we participate in the blessedness of God himself. So, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So, when you read the Beatitudes, the Greek word there is makaros, blessed. In other words, somehow in the Christian dispensation, we can be what the Greeks thought only the gods could be, blessed, participating in the divine happiness. And Sir Delange also says that contemplative experiences are a a foretaste and a beginning of the perfect joy, the joy that is coming when we will be face to face with happiness, with a capital H, with joy, with a capital J, with the Logos, Christ himself, with a capital L. He writes, behind all that we directly encounter, contemplatively, we encounter the face of the divine Logos, and it becomes, as it were, visible. And he calls this loving knowledge. And therefore, All happiness has some connection with eternal beatitude, eternal blessedness. In a similar vein, he says, The happy life is not loving what we possess, but possessing what we love. So, this is what contemplation is. It's a yearning 
It's a leaning into happiness, which is the same as God himself, and which reveals a note of inadequacy, longing that's even painful. Lewis describes this kind of joy in his own writing as a kind of divine longing greater than any human satisfaction. Okay, hopefully this has struck a chord with you and you are remembering now your own contemplative experiences. Can you now, in your own life, turn your soul towards more contemplation rather than less? How can you order your life your mind, your practices, so that some contemplation becomes a habitual part of your life. This is a critical and final point, because it's only by doing this that you could ever really hope to bring this to your students as well, because you won't be able to give or impart what you don't have. Sure, we'll all need to be like Martha, most of the time. But when will we have a chance to emulate Mary? So what is it that you could do? What what small changes could you begin to make in your own life and practice to ensure that you are contemplating the true, the good, and the beautiful? How do you begin your day? How do you end your day? What if you even focused on just five minutes at the beginning of your day or five minutes at the end of your day when you were, for one, completely silent and undistracted and uninterrupted. And what beautiful thing could you begin to gaze at during those times? Perhaps it would be scripture. Perhaps it would be poetry. Perhaps it would be beautiful art or music. But when could you set aside the time to be, as it were, at the feet of the Logos? Until we do that, it'll be very difficult for us to turn to our students and direct them and guide them into doing the same. Well, I hope this has been an encouragement to you. And for those of you who are interested in doing a deeper study of happiness and its relationship to contemplation... I encourage you to pick up this book by Joseph Pieper. Once again, it's called Happiness and Contemplation. Well, thanks for traveling with me. Next time, I hope to spend some more time with you exploring how to develop habits of contemplation. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.